George Skeggs is without question one of London's very own last remaining living legends. Otherwise known as Soho George, he is a gentleman with a truly unique style. And if by chance you're unfamiliar with his name, you certainly won't be unfamiliar with his image if you spend any time around London's historic Soho streets and cafes. Born in the East End, George arrived in Soho as a young boy for the first time in 1957 and was simply blown away by the sights and sounds and smells that emanated from the coffee shops and bars like the Two Eyes in Old Compton Street, often recognised as the birthplace of the British rock and roll scene. George is one of the most colourful personalities you're ever likely to meet, with his striking dress code of handmade tailored suits and fedora hats. He doesn't follow fashion, he just is what he wants to be and simply doesn't care what you think. At 74, he talks and moves like someone half his age and has an abundance of wonderful stories from his life and times in Soho, right through from the 50s to the present day. I love London because of people like Soho George. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. Well, I'm delighted to say that I've got a really special guest today, uh, Mr. George Skeggs. But a lot of people won't know him as George Skeggs. They'll probably know him under his uh, AKA Mr. Soho George, um, who is a, I don't know what we call you, a fashion icon, uh, Individualist. a connoisseur of Soho, a historian, an artist. I think there's a wonderful word you used, I think it was on your, your Twitter account, a flaneur. What's a flaneur, George? It's a person that walks around all day long. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. That's how I keep fit. <laughs> That's what you do for a living. You're a flaneur. Yeah. I've heard that word. For, I don't think Check it out. It's interesting. Yeah, it's, obviously it's, got, it's very basic. It's a, a French word a for guy. an English gent in Soho. Yeah, it just swans around all day long. Just you swans know. around doing... Well, we'll find out what you do, won't we? Right. So, George, it's an absolute pleasure to uh, have you on the podcast, Your London Legacy, today. It's a pleasure to be here, anyway. Thank you ever so much. Now, we were scheduled originally to meet at your tailor's, Young Tony Phillips in yeah. Berwick Street. Well, it's, it's, Tony's one of them. I've got another tailor as well. Okay, we won't. Don't tell Tony. He'll get no. upset. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we were due to meet there, and we did say hello to Tony briefly. But he had uh, that room was was double booked, I believe. So we've come back to a place well, you know particularly well, but I'm also familiar with. In um, I've got where we are now. This is, a, this is a heart of Soho. Heart of Frith Soho. Street. Frith Street, opposite Ronnie Scott's. Yeah, Bar Italia, in Bar Italy. Italy. In Bar Italia. Which mm. I think you were telling me just before has celebrated its seventieth birthday. Seventieth birthday yeah. this, this week, which opened in nineteen forty-nine. Uh, it was officially opened by uh, Bud Abbott and Luca Stella, I believe it or not, who made the first cup of cappuccino or coffee in the bar itself, which is fabulous. You know, so it's a wonderful history. It is, isn't it? So you are one of the one of the biggest personalities still living in this beautiful part of London that we call Soho. Incidentally, do you know, do you know what Soho means? Where Soho... What? It was a hunting sound. Yeah. Hunting. Soho. Soho. Yeah. Okay. You can go, anybody can Google it. I'm sure they do. They Google everything. So did days. they do... used to have hunting out of... They out did, of here, yeah. When it was more rural, less, less built up yeah. in the... That's know, right. It was a rural area yeah. in them days. Yeah, absolutely. So you're a character because the way you dress and you know everybody around here... Uh, and I want to dig a little bit into your, well, quite a bit actually, into your, your past and your upbringing and your, your love of the area and how you, how you came into this part of town from the East End of London where you, where you were born and grew up. So let's, let's go back to the, to the early days, George. When were you born, first off? I, I was born in, uh, during World War II. Uh-huh. I, I'm a war baby. When? when what year? Uh, 43. Okay, so right in the middle. And whereabouts were you? Uh, Brick Lane, not far from the famous Bagel Bakery. Uh-huh. Uh, not Bagel, Bagel. Bagel. Yeah. You say Bagel, I say Bagel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I never see my, I never saw my father, my father was in the parachute regiment, who actually uh, 
was at uh, Pegasus Bridge for the, for the liberation of Europe. You right. Know. But I never, he had a long war. He was there for seven years. He was there for seven years. I never seen him until I was four years old, which is uh, it's really weird seeing him for the first time. So how was that for you? It was a bit of emotional, a bit emotional. But at the end of the day, I was placated by a really big bar of Morville chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> which, easy, easily pleased which he whipped out of his top pocket he had his battle dress on still but then again know. chocolate in those days was not as sort of uh, no. common ubiquitous as it is today no anyway yeah I was brought up in in, in, uh, in the Brick Lane area I went to school in Clampier Road Market it's funny I, li- I was sitting in the living markets Brick Lane oh, Drury Lane Covent Garden yeah, it's Berwick Street yeah Berwick Street I mean it's still been part of my life although I do come from a, a line of Arabs though my grandfather it was the father of uh, 16 children, was a barrel boy. 16 kids sounds a lot, but my mother was one of 16. Wow. That was quite common then. Your mother was one of 16? She's one of 16. And your father? Uh, my grandfather. Your grandfather? My grandfather was the father of 16 children. Got, got you, yeah. And my mother was one of them. One of them, right, and she, okay. I think she spent most of her time bringing them up, really. That's a lot of aunts and uncles. Yeah, we did. Most of them are dead now, though, to be honest. There's right. one or two left. But they were called in them days beer babies. Go on, explain. There was called beer babies because normally, most guys, there was heavy drinkers in them days, heavy smokers, and the wives were goods and chattels, really. And they'd go out and earn a living, ducking and diving, whatever they did. I mean, he was right ducking and diving, my grandfather. Right ducking and diving. You know, he had an awesome car. He used to get his stock from Berwick Market. Uh, he used to get his stock from, from um, Common Garden Market. He used to do all the markets, Spitalfields, Brick Lane, Columbia Road, Holloway. He used to go all around the place, East London. But it was the right chap, that lad. He was. And uh, he was always drunk. He was a drunkard. His wife was also the same. Basically, they were both drunkards. She loved the Napoleon brandy, and he loved whatever he can get his hands on, Yeah. basically. And that's the kind of life. My, my, my mother had a terrible life, really, when I think about it. That's why it's fights and squabbles. She never had no shoes on their feet. It was that kind of time. Mm. You had a good relationship with your mum? Yeah, I love my mother. Yeah. She'd done a bloody good job bringing us up during the war, war with four kids. How would you feed them? Yeah. That was the other thing. People say, why are, you, why are you so skinny, George? I said, we all were. We had, we had a kind of restricted diet up to a point. We were fed. We had reasonably healthy food, or what you could get a hold of. And yeah, we, we, we had a great time. You know, and we enjoyed it. Mm. And then when sweets come off a ration, we went bonkers. Because we didn't have sea sweets until about 1954, 56, I think it was. Still had those little coupons you had to go to the shop with. But yeah, my, my old mum, yeah, she, she, um, she lived right on to about 96. Oh, lovely. She had a terrible accident, fell over, broke her pelvic ring and never recovered. You're not going to do it at that age when you break something. No, like, that's never a very heals. common injury at that age, which it tends yeah. to be one you don't recover from. So she could have gone well on into over the top, you know. So it's interesting about when you talk about heritage and how healthy we are, you know, it's all about genetics. I mean, I'm 76 and I feel really good. And you look really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I've, just saying I'm that. Really, you, actually, you look really good and fit I can and walk, I, walk, I walk from here normally. If I'm going down to South Ken to the V&A, I walk from here, from Soho, all the way there and all the way back. No aches and pains and don't stop. I walk down and walk back. That's how healthy I feel. So what, now, what, what's that, the worst illness you've had then? Oh, probably a child of me. I never know illnesses. I haven't yeah. had measles, really, as a child. Yeah, she was quite con- contagious in them days, yeah. you know. Yeah, so we, I was in Brick Lane roughly till um, about 49. Then we moved to Hackney. Went to a, a junior school there, which actually, in some respects, actually took, really kind of created a, a world that I was never not used to. My dad went to Hackney, school in Hackney. Did he? Hackney Downs. Oh, Hackney Downs. I know one or two people that went there. Yeah. Well, Anna Sugar used to live just around the corner That's from right. our school, in Well Street, in the flats. I never knew him, obviously. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
But yeah, I mean, this is where my art and creativity came to the fore when I was at this new school. I must have been now once, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, I don't know, 43. I was about six, seven. Moved to this new school, art teacher there. I also loved the art, art room, loved it. Loved the smell, poster paints, drawings on easels, the smell of it, putting the old apron on. Yeah. We had a lovely school teacher, an art teacher. She must have been about 17. She'd probably come from a socialist background, I would imagine, because she was very in touch with people at White Chapel Art Gallery. She had people that she knew worked there. One day, uh, my mum used to be a school cleaner in that building, and she came, uh, she came in one day to go work, and she said to um, the teacher, the art teacher said, oh, Mrs. Gaze, guess what I've got in this portfolio? She said, what? She said, I've got some of George's paintings. And she said, guess where they're going? She said, no. She said, they're going to China. They're going on the children's tr- a t- a tour of China. It was like a school's thing. Every school in London had to send some paintings in uh-huh. from their pupils, and they selected them. And two of mine were selected to go on this oh, tour of China. Wonderful. So at the age of seven or eight, I was actually international. Isn't that great? No, yeah. It's only when you start to look back on your life and you see all these things all stuck together. Yeah. And she said to my mother, it's weird though, it's really strange. Maybe I'm blessed, I don't know. Anyway, I had no qualifications at all. I left school at 15. Anyway, she got me to go to the Whitechapel, um, Whitechapel Art Gallery to do workshops with a friend of hers who was an art teacher there, which I enjoyed doing. Smelling the clay and lino cutting and uh-huh. printing. It's great. Anyway, um, from there, she said to my mum, do you know what, Georgie's got a lot of talent, you should go to art school. Which I never did. I weren't, weren't that kind of bad. East London art school, boxing does more like. Sure. Or ducking and diving. Yeah. Or barrel boy. But it would have been frowned upon. <laughs> yeah, it would have been, yeah. Or you would have been, you would have been seen as someone completely weird, weirdo. Yeah. Anyway, she said, oh, George, uh, George should go to art school. So I'll tell you what, Mrs. Goes, I wouldn't be surprised if you got to the Royal Academy one day, right? She didn't know what Royal Academy was. <laughs> Ironically, 20, 20 years later, three paintings in the Royal Academy. Summer show. You know, you've got to make it up, really. Yeah, it goes okay. on, it goes on. There are these kind of little hurdles. I went to have a one-man show in the West End, got one. And so, and so it just went on, it just snowballed. So my purpose, my trajectory as a person was going to be not in any, any, anything else but creativity or in the arts, one way or the other. I ended up working at the British Library for 27 years. I'd become a junior manager before I left. British Library. Now, but it was in the museum when I first went there in 1979. I was there for 22 years and I moved down to Euston Road. But I had the whole role, uh, I, I could roam around the whole of the museum all the time. What a place to be, even if I didn't have no qualifications as a painter to go anywhere and do any artwork. That was inspirational to me. Of course. It really was fa- fantastic. Well, let's go back a bit, because I think you've, you've jumped your whole, your whole section, I think. You, I have, yeah. I you have, have chunk you? Out, you yeah, missed mate. a big chunk out there. Yeah, yeah. So what we're interested in, right, well, I and it's, it's a story you've probably told many times, but it's, it's your move as a, as a young boy. A teenager. As a, as a teacher, what was he, 14, I think, when you, yeah. you, you headed over to, to yeah. Soho yeah. and got your first taste of the area? Well, what it was, we was watching the TV programme one day. It was, uh, it was called Six Fire Special on the BBC. BBC were trying to tune into the, the teen vibe because we was actually called the first teenagers then at that time, but the very first teenagers. And all we had on the radio was like big bands, Frank Sinatra. To, to teenagers, it was boring. Then Presley come along. So who are you going to go home with? You're going to go home with Frank Sinatra or big band sounds, you know. So it's Elvis Presley. Anyway, on this programme, um, he, he went on the programme, this guy, but um, as it turned out, we watched this programme and kids were coming in to do auditions at the Twice Coffee Bar. 
to play down there. So just say that bar against the Two, the two, two Eyes, two eyes coffee, bar. coffee Bar, which is in Old, Com- or old Com- 59 Compton Street. Old yeah, Compton, old Street. Compton Street. It's now a yeah. fish and chip shop. Yeah. But they've actually retained, it does look like an old diner in a sense, which yeah. is quite good. If you go down to the basement, it's like the toilets, which used to be the area where they had like, the live music. Because uh-huh. anybody that was anybody in the, in the music game would, got, would have gone down there. You know, even the Beatles heard of it. They come there to pay homage. It's well, well before the cavern as well. Anyway, we, we thought we'd, oh, we're going to start a skiffle group because everybody wanted to be a rock star. And skiffle was a bit like punk in a sense. Anybody could play it. Two, three calls, and he was laughing. He was away. But where did you get your knowledge from of this music? Was this just, it on TV? Was this is from TV because in Again, those days yeah, it would have been a black and white, presumably a black yeah, and white did, yeah. We used to talk to, used to talk to people. Why did you see that program last night? Uh-huh. It's out the West End, and there'd be stories on the paper, news of the world about Jack's Bar, the Razor Gangs, and all the stuff that was going on, the prostitution, and it's kind of one of those places you, you was being lured to, the bright lights. Yeah. Because I remember coming first in 1957, we got off a bus at Piccadilly Circus, and the neon was unbelievable. You can smell it crackling. But you're you're 14 years of, of age. Yeah. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, I don't think my parents would have let me out of the house well, to, to go from North London to, well, to I'll Soho. Well, I'll tell you something. Old. When we were even younger, six or seven, we used to walk from London, used to walk from uh, Brick Lane or Hackney over to Battersea Park. At six and or back. seven. Yeah, I'm not joking. And is that with your that was quite with, common? With your parents' consent, or you yes. just sort of sneaked out the back door? So don't be late. You got the back door. Have a jam sandwich in your back pocket, <laughs> and off you go. And we, what we used to do, we get to Liberal Street, then follow the river. Yeah. The river was a great place to explore. Sure, there's lot, there was a lot of bombed out whereas, and yeah, you, know, you could muck about, throw bricks in the river, you know, and have silly fights. But we managed to work our way along, right past the Festival of Britain site. Some of it was still there then. I think there was a bit of like ultramarine tarmac. I always remember near Waterloo Bridge. Anyway, we used to walk all the way back via the other side of the river. Across Chelsea Bridge, all the way down to Trafalgar Square. So this is you with what? Some school friends? My brother and maybe a couple of other mates. Uh-huh. Everybody used to do it. He just used to wander off. That's but, how we got our education, really. But getting into, I don't know if you actually, you haven't said yet, got into bars and clubs and coffee no. things. Were you just hanging around outside, you know, sort of sneaking a peek? Or? We're just, yeah, just hanging around up here originally. Right. We used to come out and look, look for the prostitutes, basically. <laughs> Find out where they were. Oh, there's one over there, Charlie. Oh, no, there's one up there. Where's she going? Let's go and follow her. There's one down there. Like, oh, look. Oh, shame bad issue. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, there's all that going on. But uh-huh. of course, um, this was even after they changed the law that you couldn't solicit on the streets. But I think it was about 56, about a year earlier, a couple of years earlier. It was a Wolfton report. They banned them from being on the streets, but there was still some like they still are still today. The shop doors and the windows. And, yeah, you yeah. still see them. I know a few today. They're still around, you know. Mm. Nothing much has changed. It's still there. I mean, it was a kind of subculture in Soho anyway. Well, it's not quite so apparent now. But it is there. It's still bubbling underneath. So you're 14 years old, well, 14 roughly. 14 years old. We're coming up there to get discovered at the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. I used to play a tea, tea chest bass, single string. I think you need to explain to those who are a little bit younger than, well, probably well, younger than Well, was, was uh, what you might call, uh, what in, in America, was it called a jug band. A jug band was you, you make uh, homemade instruments. You know, there'd be a jug you yeah. could blow into. There'd be, be a washboard, washboard. A rhythm. There'd be a harmonica. Or even a kazoo, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And a single string bass, which was made out of a tea chest, turn upside down, holding the top, a piece of string, a broom handle, and used to, used to tension it to change the notes slightly. Uh-huh. All you needed was just a basic rhythm. And that was it. We used to practice in, uh, in Hackney in my, um, my mate Johnny's mother's um, washroom. She used to come in with the washing. We, we'll all be in there mucking around. 
trying to play yes as it were we're going to be called the Well Street Ramblers believe it or not and um she said, you boys going to be long in here, blimey. She said, I've got to get this washing up. All the stuff, corsets drip, dripping down the back of your neck. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. With these old corsets with, uh-huh. the, with the snaps on, yeah. holding the stockings up, sitting there like they're trying to play, oh, there's some water dripping down the back of my neck. <laughs> anyway, I mean, that was a turning point. We come up here, um, um, my mate played a piano. He was a good piano player, actually. My mum was a, played a clarinet. It's right mix. But my, my direction was always going to be painting. Well, the guy with the clarinet wasn't even in a jazz band. He was having professional lessons at the time. Anyway, we came up, we had a walk around, and of course, we, we was actually mesmerised by the area. Then suddenly it was like coming up every weekend, up to Top Court Road. You could smell Soho as well from, then, from in them days. I don't know about getting hours, Boris. We got up to Tube, walked down Top Court Road, past there with Astoria. You could smell the food, the exotic uh, food. Yeah. But there again, it always reminded me a bit of Brick Lane because it was a very Jewish area yeah. and it was a lot of exotic food being cooked there. Uh-huh. Delicatessens, I used to go and get the, the stuff in there. My mother used to like smoke salmon. There were sandstones out of the barrel and all that stuff. And um, it was a bit like that. It always reminded me of East London. It still does today. Well, walking it, up and down Berwick Street just now is very yeah. reminiscent of all the yeah. market stalls and the this, smells. Uh, this enclave here is very similar to kind of Whitechapel. Yeah. And I think it had the same kind of characters, to be honest, you know. Well, there would be villains, Jack Spot. They all come from that area. This was where the money was, I suppose, as well. Gambling clubs and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but anyway, that went that went by the by. But there was a great guy down there who influenced me. I don't really get that influenced by many people, I'll be honest. I like to do my own thing. But this guy did look good. It was a guy called Vince Taylor, and he played with a group called the Playboys that was forever changing. Mm-hmm. He said that he said um, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, a couple of guitars from that. He said um, someone from the Shadows in his band, but he looked like Elvis Presley. He looked a double, black shirt, black this slacks. Two eyes, was it? Two eyes, coffee bar. Yeah, uh, that was a little bit later. Because Wally White was there in the old days. He became a BBC guy, I think, eventually on the children's programs. But Wally, uh, Wally White and the Vipers were the first band. Also, Adam Fife. Adam Fife actually opened the, the, the programme on Six Five Special with the Worried Men, which was a skiffle group. Uh-huh. That was 1957. Adam Fife. That was before he was Adam Fife. Yeah. And people don't realise, this coffee bar, you're talking a coffee shop, this was downstairs. Yeah. And this was tiny little venue. Yeah, nothing. This yeah, tiny, about, nothing. About, the most, it'd be, it'd be overcrowded. We had about 25 people in it. So it was packed out with a little stage, you're all smoking. Well, you, you can imagine what the sound you. system was like, yeah. couldn't you? Well, probably not, wasn't one. The thing hanging from the <laughs> ceiling. Down, oh, terrible. Yeah. Absolutely. But, of course, it generated the atmosphere, and that was the main thing, really. He had that kind of... And you felt like it was subterranean. He was being different. He was rebelling against your parents. I mean, in them days, you know, when, before I used to go out, my mum used to say to me, oh, George, you're not going to go out looking like that, are you? <laughs> you're not going to go out looking like that, are you? I, she, I said, oh, well, yeah. She said, oh, oh, don't be late then. So how were you dressed in those days? Lad-ish. Loud. I had, a teddy boy, I had a teddy boy haircut, elephant trunk, uh-huh. before I become a mod, modernist. Canary yellow, check, and black shirt, big squares. These, these were, I mean, then it was absolutely off the wall. Yeah. Today it's nothing. You get anything online there, just tap it in. If you look like me, just tap me in on the, and it, the, the algorithm will find something that looks like me. Yes. But, you know, it took me 76 years to get to this. But So how did you determine that was what you wanted? I mean, where did you get that idea from? You wanted this loud, loud I just want, I want you to be me. It was about me being me and nobody and what else. what was you? I mean, did you just think... You, I, was a, yeah, I, I was a creative. Uh-huh. See, a lot of people want to be somebody, but they don't even know who they are. 
I was fortunate at a young age, I knew that I wanted to be an artist. Now, whether I made a living from it, it didn't make one bit of difference. Mm. Because what I was going to do, I was going to be an artist. And that's it. But people get hung on the notion that they've got to be this and be that. And a lot of people want to be like other people. Mm. So you were truly doing what we oh, call today, you know, following your passion. You wanted yeah, to do what... I've always done it. Yeah. I, that's why I look so, so young. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't had that stress. I've always been me. Yeah. And it's not always easy. I mean, you have to take, you have to take the flack. I was walking down Charing Cross Road the other day, and an old boy looks at me, and he looks at me, he stopped, old oh boy, I look at me, I'm 76. He's probably a little bit younger than me. He looks at me, and he, look, he went, there's more out than in. I said, yeah, well, when you fucking going in then? You know, he, he, he was looking, he said to say, oh, he's a nutcase, he's like me. So I'm going to tailor clothes. I just want to be on clothes. Uh-huh. They're tailored, Savile uh, several Row fabrics, and you're going, there's more out than in. The funniest one, though, I've got to tell you this before we move on. I was, in a, I was outside of a coffee bar on Museum Street about four years ago. I was all in black, white flower, with a black hat on, and I was minding my own business. And this old boy, as well, shuffled up the street, walking stick. As he got to me, just as he got past me, she was a little bit behind him. He turned around, ran to his wife, and he said to her, I don't know whether he's going to a wedding or a funeral. <laughs> and as he walked past, I said, yeah, yours. <laughs> but you have to, you get, so it's water for ducks back to you, these it insults. Is, yeah. you, you don't but care. You get some people that are, not most of, I'll be honest, 99% of it's complimentary, uh-huh. which is nice. So it should be. Yeah but, I don't expect, yeah, but the thing is, at the end of the day, um, I don't expect to go out. I don't dress up and say, oh, I'm going to go out today. And get people to, I just go out. All I'm being, as I always tell people, is me. Uh-huh. And I flash the inside of the coat with my name on it, Soho George. That's me. And when I say, you, who when, are you? When did you first become Soho George? Who are you? Who, who was the oh, person? Uh, it was going to be West End George originally. Right. But a friend of mine, Jane Palm Gold, who was very active around there in charity work. She's a museum curator, artist, and a designer. And she's a historian. She said, George, you should go onto Instagram or, no, no, Twitter. I said, what for? I ain't even got a mobile phone. I ain't, I ain't got a mobile phone. Any picture you see in my night have been taken by other people. I've never done a selfie. Anyway, she says to me, George, you have, um, I said, well, what for? She'd get a load of followers. I said, well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, she'd need the name. you need a handle. That's it. Handle. That's right. it. So we worked through a load of lists. Then she finally come down. I said, what about West End Jules? That was one of mine. And she said, I've got a better one. What about Sarah Jules? I said, you know what? I said, that sounds good. You know. Okay, we'll go with that. Anyway, first day, four followers. I said, James, I said, look, nothing on here. Four followers, you're joking. Where's the thousands? You anyway, wanted to go viral immediately. Yeah, anyway, the thing was, three days later, it's gone up to 544. I said, hang on a minute. Most of them were in Japan. Isn't that oh. weird? Well, they've got a the fascination Jap- for London, haven't they? Japanese have got a great sense of style. Not yeah. the Chinese, the Japanese. They're fabulous. And they like style. And I like that as well. Uh-huh. And obviously, I mean, I've gone... It's, it's gone up over there. They've seen me. They've put pictures up. And it's got bigger and bigger. It's now. I mean, it could be more because I don't follow people. And I've got 500 up. But that was in the early days. I thought, like, what's the point of following people? You can't talk uh-huh. to 3,000 people. <laughs> I said, I've got things to do. Why don't we just sort of occasionally just speak to one another? Which I do. So when people, I don't follow back no more. I just got fed up with it, really. That's it's just ridiculous. Enough. But people want to follow you because you, you're, yeah. an, you're an unusually dressed gentleman. Well, some people stylish say, stylish gentleman. Some people do say, they're like, well, I like, I like your tweets, they're interesting. I said, well, like, if I put a picture up, I'd like, like to pad it out a bit with a bit of history. So if I put up a picture of maybe Piccadilly in 1956, I'd say something like, for instance, oh, yeah, do, do you know the famous Coca-Cola sign? Yeah. That was only two years old then. It didn't go up to 54. Uh-huh. Or, you know, there'd be with um, Zedelzes, that you see the park. Yeah. 
the Park Hotel, the Palace Hotel. That's right. You know, and so there's those little, little snippets you can put in, you know, to throw into the mix. So where were we? I forgot where we were. <laughs> we, we were up to you at the uh, the Two Eyes and following all the skiffle um, beat and rock and roll and this guy who performed there, I forget his name. Really yeah, yeah Vince Terry and the Playboys. Vince, yeah. yeah, well, Vince, Vince actually opened up, um, all, the, all the birds loved him. I mean, he did look, he did look tasty. He looked good. All in black. I liked the all, all being black as well. Uh, which was quite revolutionary then. It was completely different. So People you like his style? You started to follow his look? Yeah, good style. Look. But I never copied him, let's put it that way. I don't even I did. I, he had a nice pair of black and white two-tone shoes, which Presley used to wear. I've seen them on Presley originally, but he copied Presley. But I like the idea of having black flat trousers with a little flex in, mm-hmm. with his shoes, you know. And a uh, bit of quiff. The quiff came off a little bit later, though. Anyway, moving on, we, we, um, he opened up a club called the Top Ten Club. Just up Berwick Street, next door to uh, a brothel. Uh, it was downstairs. Um, there was a, another coffee bar called Sandwiches. It's now, it's now a German um, coffee bar, now uh-huh. a, a, a recent addition on that corner. But in the basement, there used to be his club, where they had um, people to come down and play. A bit like the two eyes in a sense. I suppose he was trying to replicate the two eyes coffee bar in a sense, but on his own terms. But he also um, had a guy who used to go down, Ray, uh, Ray Duval. It was known as Britain's Ace Drama at the time. Mm-hmm. But Ray played on uh, Emil, Emil Ford and the Checkmates records. A big hit he had. He played the drums. He also played on Johnny Kidd and the Pirates as well. Shaking all over. He's the drummer on that. Okay. So you've got studio musicians playing on Taylor's records. Joe Moretti played the lead. Now, Joe was a great, uh, Joe was a great guitarist. So he was one of our best, really. He comes to the Two Eyes with his wife. He come from Glasgow, come down to London to see what was going on about in the Two Eyes coffee bar. He said, when I saw the scene down there, some of them can play a guitar. Well, it's true. We just like rock and roll is wearing nappies. You know, but it was all new. It was all brand new. How'd you do it? Two chords, three chords. Anyway, he could play a guitar. Finger pick. Good. Were you actually getting into the bars at this, at this yeah. time? You oh, actually- you could, no, you could go into, um, the, the Two Eyes. Them places. Right, even at your age. I mean, how Yeah, old but it's only you? a coffee bar. Right. Yeah, get in there. Don't forget, it's only 57, then close to 67. So it's a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, even in, I'm talking about now, about 1960. Right. When Taylor was down there. But Moretti came down, he wanted to play, he, he wanted to play in a band anyway. So he went back home, he said to his wife, I said, I'm going to go and move down there. Anyway, he'd done an interview down there with a guy who owned the place. Um, what was his name? Um, Paul Lincoln. He said, oh, can you come down and do an, uh, do, do an, uh, what's the name? an interview, a rehearsal, mm-hmm. which he did. He said, great. Anyway, he teamed up with loads of bands. He was so good. Everybody wanted him in his band, in that band. He ended up playing on, like, as I said, Taylor's records. And uh, I would say probably, there's always a big debate whether Move It by Cliff Richard was the very first British rock and roll record or where it was shaken all over. I think it's a very tight squeeze, although I suppose Cliff Richard and The Shadows did come a bit earlier. Well, I think that was called the Drifters then, so they had to change their name. That was it, his backing group, I think, yeah. wasn't it, Cliff? 1958, it was an American band in America, uh-huh. a group in America singing. Yes. Yeah, the Drifters. Yeah. They found out they had a name called the Drifters, and they, so they had to change stop. it to yeah. the Shadows. I, was, I, I must admit, I did like Shaking All Over, though, really. It was actually, it was, a, it was a Soho record as well, in that sense. It was written in Soho, in the Freight Train Coffee Bar, just up from Vince Taylor's Club on the corner. In fact, the guy used to come down to look after his club when he was away on tour. 
You know. So what was it about Soho that was attracting all these sort of musicians and artists and bohemian types who wanted well, to hang out? Well, I used to, I used to, I used to call it in a, more of a joke. Anyway. I used to call it, it was a reservation for weirdos in a sense, uh, for, for want of a better word. Are you putting yourself in that category? Yeah, I would do, yeah, if you, if you like. I mean, because most people I see, are, they're weird. Uh-huh. They're not being themselves. They're uh-huh. the weirdos. Okay. The people that come here who were weirdos were the real people because they were themselves. They were being themselves or they playing at being themselves. One way or the other, you so can never tell. So you think we're too conformist then? They were. Yeah. They still are today. Don't make... They are, they're worse today. Hmm. They all go online and all look the same anyway. They want to look they don't like... Talk. Some, yeah. yeah, they don't talk either. They don't have conversation. Well, they do. Too busy one? with their head in their phones. Mate, I don't know. I mean, I've, all I can say is I've only ever been myself and I've, I, I ever wanted to be myself. But, you know, so how uh, do this, these experiences in the coffee bars and the you know the meeting and hanging out with these musicians and artists? How did that sort of? But, but it kind of broadened my broadened my mind. Do you know what I mean? I used to go around to the Macabre Coffee Bar around in Mid Street. Right, I mean they had silly things on the jukebox like the uh, Death March by Mozart. You know what I mean? And, and, but they used to have a lot of poets go down there. It's all blacked out. Yeah, coffee tables and that stuff and skull ashtrays. Uh-huh. A friend, a friend of mine, um, his sister used to work down there selling um, chicken soup. Really basic kind of menu, something, you know, bread and dripping probably, I don't know. It was crazy. But it was a great place to hang out. You met people down at your own age who had similar interest. It was, sort of like, uh, it was a bit like um, having a very open mind and an imagination. I was interested in loads of things. They used to talk about John Paul Sartre and all that stuff. It's all kind of heavy, man, you know what I mean? It's all beatnik and bohemian. I loved all that Isn't stuff. Daggy? Oh yeah, yeah, they were doing a lot of it. I suppose you could call it uh, pot, really. Smoking pot in those days. Yeah. Pot, yeah, quite common. Of course, in the sixties, it was actually speed more, more than anything else. Because you was doing all night parties, or all night, all nighters in clubs. Mm. But of course, you could buy it legally in Piccadilly Circus. Speed kept you up at night. I mean, it was one of those things those used during the war for soldiers to keep them awake yeah, yeah. Yeah. when they was on duty. Or, or if they're going to go on the bomber raid, that'd be awake, so it's yeah. like a pet pill. But of course, uh, everybody discovered it. I mean. Today, if you took, I mean, if I, I mean, a kid kill me today, but my heart would go, it just blow up. I mean, as you get older, your heart gets weaker and weaker and weaker. The idea is I suspect you probably don't need it. You're no, more I don't. Age after what you've been through. No, somebody <laughs> said that to me actually. I said, I said, like, adrenaline. You forget it. I've got tons of it. Like, you want some of mine? I'll give you some. <laughs> really funny. <laughs> so, what were you doing? I mean, as a young man, when you weren't hanging around in, you know, presumably this is in the evenings. What were you, were you working at all? During I was the day? working. Yeah, I was working. Where was I working as a teenager? I've had loads of jobs. Mm-hmm. I've had about forty jobs. Well, one of the highlights, I suppose, I also worked with a guy. It's a job around the West End. Ran, also around here but it was a white tea leaf he, he was an opportunist he would like, work for a living if you seen anything around pick it up and that was it oh. he used to do the same around here but I mean there's like, loads of stores I don't really want to go into you know what I mean <laughs> 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 but yeah but, but yeah we had a great we had a great time I, I'll tell one thing we used to do quite a lot before I started work or we was waiting for a job we'd go around to um, the Piccadilly Cafe at the Greasy Spoon which has since closed down you go in there for eggs and bacon, the rest of it every day. Then we pop round to the era cinema on the corner of Piccadilly. One of those days, we used to show cheap flicks, newsreels, cartoons. Mm-hmm. And we used to sit in there. We used to watch uh, the prostitutes come in there with their clients and sit in the back row. Oh, a bit of action in the back. Yeah. <laughs> but it was quite funny. Of course, it got quite notorious. In the end, the, the, the manager had to keep the lights on. For the shenanigans going on in the back, yeah. But what, what I found funny about the whole situation was when you went in there, you sat down, the door literally used to come off, almost off the street. 
So every time someone came in, you had a big burst of daylight come in, and you could see all the clouds of smoke. And you knew see exactly the what they past. were coming in for. Yeah. <laughs> but it was funny. I mean, uh, it talked about comfort. Of course, when the lights were on, it was a white dump, really. <laughs> but uh, there was loads and loads about those little cinemas. There was one in Chancras Road, uh, Oxford Street, The Strand, down at Trafalgar Square. And they just showed, then they become cheap flicks films, but they showed uh, exploitation sex films, mm. like the cameo in uh, Great Wimbledon Street, which had, um, there was a gymnasium there nowadays, Jack Solomon's a boxer. They used to bring all the boxers, boxers over from America mm. to have their weigh-ins, go into ISOs for a meal, ran by, by, by Raymond's, you know, walk around the street with a paparazzi taking photographs, you know. But that was an interesting street as well. Because that had loads of, uh, of course, it had the famous Snosh Bar, salt beef sandwiches. Lovely. Everybody used to go there. My fa- one of my favourites. Every time my mum come up to see me with my old dad when he was alive, he used to come round to a uh, next door to the Noel Coward Theatre in Charing Cross Road. On the corner, there used to be Gabby's. He'd been there for a long time. They used to go in there first for a meal. I said, where are you going? She said, we're going to go and have our salt beef sandwiches first and we'll come out and see you. Because nice. in them days, I just used to live round um, just off St. Martin's Lane, beyond the Coliseum. Coliseum Theatre? Yeah. I moved there in 1960, I think, or a little bit earlier. 1960, 62, about that anyway. What I found, what I used to like, I used to walk past the stage door before I got into my, coming to the flats where I lived. I used to walk past the stage door. Beautiful building, by the way, the Coliseum. Beautiful, Fabulous. lovely building. Frank Matram, he yes. built some of the fan, most fantastic theatres in the West End, including in the Hippodrome. I used to walk past, I used to look at the, I used to look at the stage door for something because I was a great Lauren Hardy fan. And of course, Lauren Hardy had walked through them doors in 1956 on their tour of Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And this was probably about seven years later. And I thought, you know what? Ain't it funny? I loved them. And they used to walk in that door. Or even the Marx Brothers. Because they did a tour as well. Great comedians. But now, where was I? I'm getting carried away. I'm not going too far down the line. <laughs> so when did you actually move into Soho? Where, where, where do you live I'm not, I'm actually, I'm not actually, in, actually... I keep telling people I'm not, I'm not in Soho. I'm actually a Soho neighbour. I'm on the other side of Charing Cross Road. Okay. So it's taken me, taken me to get to you today from our flat, taking me five, uh, six minutes walk, literally. So where are you? Sort of seven I'm dollars? I'm seven right? dollars. Seven dollars, right, okay. That's uh, also a lovely part of town, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, yeah, we saved it, actually. Uh, that's another story. Saving Covent Garden. Uh-huh. I, was, was on, was, I was on the forum at one flat time. Let's help out doing all the posters. A bit campaigning. In fact, we, st- we used to squat with the uh, St. Martin School of Arts students in an old banana warehouse, Long Long Acre. Because we built two community gardens there. One was a Japanese garden with a bridge, ducks, built by the community. Mm-hmm. Another side was a community garden. We used to have live music. We had a stage there. We had swings. We had allotments. Of course, that was all going to be redeveloped. We, we fought to save it, mainly for social housing, which we did eventually on that site, become Autumn's Walk. But that was, that was actually on the site of the Japanese garden, but also a bank of, um, there's a big banana warehouse. I had a studio up there, I had a studio up there, only the guy who looked after the building. It was semi-derelict. But students from St. Martin School of Art used to have places up there as well so we stayed in the building as long as possible to keep the speculators out knocking it down like you know yeah it's quite funny well there's so many people like you who've done good things to save parts of london you know obviously there was tim pan alley sort of attempts to stop that being taken yeah. over by but it was a long it was a long in. journey i mean the cgca the congan community association started uh, two years i think before the, the Soho society and uh, they always worked in, uh, of course, what we, what, I mean, what you've got today, you've got kind of like Common Garden creep, 
as it were, coming to this side. Because it's been gentrified to a point now, we're never going to afford to live there. Mm. It's been, they're creeping onto this side of the road. And so it's been pinched from my Mayfair side. So, I mean, where we were today by um, Borovix on that corner, if you look down the street, it looks like it could be anywhere. It could be downtown Basingstoke. Yeah. You would say it was Soho. Well, you got all the big sort of multinational sort of conglomerates moving in, all the Costas and the Starbucks. Yeah. And well, it's all money, money, money. And also, don't, as long as you see shops about, a lot of money laundering going on as well. You know, they've got this so-called, I don't know if they've still got it, it's a two, two million pound passport, where if, you, if you're willing to invest two million pound in London, you can have a passport break, come over. Mm. What's two million pound today to a, a drugs launderer? <laughs> Nothing. Mm. So you have to wonder what's going on. Of course, what they're doing, they're, 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 they're killing the area and they're pushing people out who can't afford to live anymore. So do you think this area is losing its character? In I've seen times? it lose it quite a bit, yeah. Maybe. Over the last 25 years, I would have said, it's, got, it's kind of speeded up. The idea of this um, Biotelli being here is absolutely a miracle. It really is. Because most of the other places that I know have all gone. You've got, like, lean, you've got leaners. You've got leaners and you've got the Tuas Coffee Bar. You've got Camisas, the Algerian, the French. This place and maybe a couple of others I don't, can't think of that are still here. But it was, a, it was an awful lot more places that have gone. The fabric of the area looks very similar, mm. but that's gradually changing. It's still got a lovely, unique feel to it. I mean, yeah, it when is. You come here, and people love to come to Soho, don't they? They love business. Oh yeah, they feel they're going to somewhere special and exciting for for nightlife. And tourists are always attracted to this part of the town. Of course, yeah. Well, it's on it's on the tourist map. Yeah, that's the same with the British Museum, which is just not too far away. So you're saying before we went um, sort of live that you have like a daily routine of your your walk. What exactly does that entail? Because you said you're fit and young, well, and you yeah. run, you run around all over the town. I do like, I love walking because I was always encouraged to walk as children. I told you earlier about mm. walking from here down to the South Cane, blah, blah, blah. Can I go back to the South Cane? Of course you bit? can. I'll tell you why. Because one day I begged my mother, I'm living in Hackney now, right? I want to go to uh, I Park Corner. We didn't want to walk, get a bus. I begged her and begged her for two pence. I ain't got it, George. I ain't got it. I can't. No. I mean, 2p was two, it's probably a pint, two pints. I mean, I don't know. So in the end, she caved in. We jumped on the number six bus from Hackney Wick. We got off at High Park, um, Marble, uh, Marble Arch, walked through the park. Never been there before. Walked through. Probably been about nine or ten, at, 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 at the oldest. Got to, got to the Albert Memorial. We actually hit a road called Exhibition Road. Uh-huh. Know it well. Oh, bloody hell. Got down there. The Institute, they were showing films in there as part of the um, Imperial College. Uh-huh. They, it's all been knocked down now. I, bought, I, I remember it when it was the original building. They pulled it down. In 56, 57. You've got three films. We used to go and used to walk ethnographical films in there. It's all free. Yeah. Get me cross driving to a place called, I've never been there before, Science Museum. Fantastic. <laughs> My, I was going like this. Wow. Never been here before. But the, the best bit was when we come out of it, we walked over the road into the VNA. Now, that was a transcendental meditation trip. That was. Walked in there. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And I thought, do you know what? Living a sheltered life, in a sense, culturally in East London, what was I missing? It was there. Yeah. And I found it. That was my nirvana. That was it. I'd actually, I'd become like what you might call a fully fledged create, creative, creative person in my own imagination. What was it that appealed to you particularly? Everything. It had, everything. It had furniture, it had ceramics, stained glass, silverware, tapestries, Fashion, architecture. Fashion clothing, didn't they? Everything. Yeah. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. And that was a turning point in my life. That really was a turning point. It really was. That was. Did you appreciate that at the time, or is it just now looking back you can think? Hang I on appreciated it at the time. Yeah, 
you knew that it was, was a, a, that a was a moment in your life that was going to... That was, that was a moment. Yeah. And it really was. When I look back on it now, it actually was a moment. Because everything has kind of stemmed from that, really, to, to what I am today, in a sense. Did you go back after incidents like that and tell your parents, you know, I'm so excited. I've done what, yeah. yeah. How did that go down? Not too well. <laughs> not, well not, I mean, they Just weren't interested. Work, yeah, they, they weren't. I mean, you know, I mean, those working class people, they come from uh, impoverished backgrounds when they were kids. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a work for a living, terrible hours. Well, no, my dad actually, um, he was a veneer presser. And he's done veneering. He actually works on the um, Coventry Cathedral. He'd done all the, uh, the pews around the back of the, um, the scenery. But the irony of that was when, when they did it, the contract was for his firm to make it in Brick Lane, where he works in this woodworking company. When they consecrated the church in the 60s, you would have thought all the cast people would have gone there to, no, not there, the manager went. That was a difference then. Everybody knew their place, that, mm. the, their cap. I said, it's outrageous, really. I said, you do all that lovely work. I went out and see it later on with my mum. I said, you know, isn't it fantastic? It was lovely veneering. I said, yeah, your dad, dad did that. I said, it's a bit ironic in a sense because he went to um, Pegasus Bridge to liberate Europe and he's come back and he's rebuilt a church the Germans bombed. That's just really weird. <laughs> the irony of it. Yeah, and there's, love, right? there's lots of yeah. irony in my life, really, in a sense. Uh -huh. It's funny. and all kind of fits, it all slots in. And it's been a great journey. I want, a, I want another 25 years at least. Well, the way you're carrying on, there's no reason why you shouldn't. You're a fit man. Let's talk about your fashion, your f sense of fashion. Not fashion, no, please. Not fashion? No, I'm not a fashionista. Okay. Well, how, would you, how would you describe I'd your... Describe your, your, your I'd describe fashion as... A fashionista is a person who's not like somebody else. Do you get it? I, I absolutely get it. So you're not I'm following fashion. You're no, set, I'm an individualist. You've set your own individual. Yeah, that's why I always tell the people, well, have you got your own brand? So I've flashed a coat with my name on it. I design, It's not in this one, but all my other stuff's yeah. got my name in. And truth be told, there is no one else walking around. No, so I said, design, I said just design all your own clothes. Yeah. I said, it's easy. Get a sheet of paper, do a drawing, and take it to the tailor. I well, mean, you must have picked bits you know we were no, talking no. about zoot suits early and you said oh you looked at me and said, oh no not zoot suits that's why this came about this particular shape this coat it was actually i got a double breasted jacket that goes with a suit right i went into mark power my tailor the other day the, the um uh, when i was having it the other one made not time this was the other guy mark who's in marshall street mm -hmm. i said mark by the way i said um can you make that jacket that i was wearing make it four feet longer and that was it it was a eureka moment since then, everybody's had their own idea of what it is all about and where did it come from. What's that, 1930s, 1930s? It's none of that. It was just a moment in time. So given that we're on a, this is not a visual uh, medium. What a shame. Just, just, <laughs> well, we'll post some photographs. Don't worry about that. Just, so just explain. I mean, how tall are you, first off? What are you? Five, five. Five, 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 five six. I yeah. used to be five, seven when I was you young. Shrunk. Five, eight. I shrunk, yeah. <laughs> Everybody shrinks. Well, I broke my neck, you see, and I've, I've got my uh, man's shoulders. Okay. That's another story, though. Uh-huh. We'll come on to that maybe <laughs> so five five and your jacket from your shoulders down to your i don't know 40, it, halfway down your leg how, how? the length the length is always got to be 44 inches from uh -huh. the neck down to at the bottom so it goes down to your shins really doesn't it fair way down yeah fair way down. see yeah. if it was a zoot suit it'd be above the knee right so that's well short of a zoot suit mm -hmm. the zoot suit is not actually tailored so it's double-breasted double-breasted yeah six buttons six buttons always five buttons on the cuff and the design, the pattern is, what would you call it? It's not dog tooth, is dog, it? It's a, it's, a, it's a blue check, blue basically, check. yeah. yeah. It's just quite an old one, actually, this one. I'm in old clothes today. 
Are you? I, I've got more recent ones. Yeah, well, it's tiny, mate. So how many suits do you have? Oh, I've lost count. The thing about these is you can either change them. I could wear this long jacket with a black shirt, black pinstripe trousers, and black painted shoes, and a black hat. Uh-huh. So you've got black a beige fedora. The, the fedora's actually from uh, Laird in Covent Garden. Uh-huh. They make all my stuff, or they dye them to the right colour. So, you, I mean, you've got to spend money. I mean, it, uh, well, so the whole outfit, roughly, when you when you walk out your front door in the morning, it costs. I'm around about about around about two and a half grand, three grand. Really? Like, yeah. You won't buy a suit, right? Well, you can buy clothes off the peg or yeah. make to measure. But if you're dealing with bespoke, you, you you you're in another league. So that's everything. It's the double cuff shirt. Yeah. It's your tie with a pin. Even even the shirts are made. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the shirts, the smart power, spear point, tab collar. So everything is handmade for you. Yeah. I, I even like yeah the whole thing. I, I, I'll be honest today. I'm most annoyed today. I'll tell you why. It's a mismatch. Go on. I was coming see, out. See if I can spot I it. I got in the street and I thought, you know what, you idiot, what have you done? I'm, I'm that pedantic, really. Go on. I'm not what, really. What, what, what am I missing? <laughs> look at the tie pin and look at the cufflinks. So, so the tie pin is, it looks like a beaked butterfly or something. Yeah, can you see a difference in the material? In the material? They're silver and that's, that's gold. Oh, yeah, sorry. It, they should I, be gold. Of course. They should have been gold. I, 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 I had them on the side, but I, this was in the shirt from last night, and I kept it on. And I thought, ah, oh, wear that tie with the with the with the B. Well, let's just put it down to your uniqueness rather than an error of well, judgment. Yeah. Well, it was, <laughs> yes, maybe, yeah. Um, but the thing is, with the, with the B, people say, "I love the B." I said, well, "Without the B, you've got no fabrics." <laughs> and they like that. Without the B, you've got no fabrics. And the shoes. What shoes we got on today? Well, these are Lokes, an old English company, 1888. Yes, yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're still well going known. and they're beautiful oh, yeah. handmade shoes. I've had these about 12 years, I reckon. So they're two-tone brown and tan? Uh, yeah, they're buff. They're buff. Good, um, I also wear what they call spats as well. Uh-huh. Uh, they're a bit slightly different. You don't see too many people wearing spats anymore, do you? Well, M- M- Mark does sometimes. Mark Powell sometimes does, does Yeah, some of, some of the aficionados do. I mean, they, <laughs> But not not for me. But uh, the, um, the spats ones, they're built in. Yes. And they've got a great name, the other ones. They're called Cigar and Cream. Uh. <laughs> great name. Got them from Camden Town. But I normally wear Loke, either black and white. Or I might wear Grenson's, White Brogues. But they're all quality shoes. I always say to people, if you're going to wear shoes, always try and get leather. Because if you wear any other fabric, you're going to get blisters. So when did you form this idea of how you wanted to look? This specific one that you now I never did. For? No, it just, it's just evolved. When I was a teenager, as a modernist, we used to have our clothes made anyway. How can I you double breasted. That? Seriously. I used to pay it weekly, weekly to the tailor, uh-huh. half a crown a week. There's an, old, there's, there's an old myth about teenagers had more money then in them days, right? They never did. What they had, they had credit. Right. Harold Macmillan actually introduced credit. So they could get anything now. In fact, it's, it's the beginning of today's problems with people that are being in debt. They've all got bank cards. That's what it is. It all started from then. Uh-huh. I've never been like that, though. I used to pay, I always pay for my stuff. Even today, I always pay for it cash. No cards, nothing. Cash, cash, cash. Yeah. No footprints, you see. <laughs> and, 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 and you wouldn't get your suit until you, you paid off your last payment, presumably. Or did, no, no, you get it. Yeah, you get it from him. You get the whole thing on the first payment? Uh, maybe a couple down the line. Right. Yeah. Or he'd take his time. It'd take longer to do it. Like you know, <laughs> but the funny thing about it, he was having, having a maid. And also, he used to have our shoes made as well. He had a pair of shoes made for two, two and a half quid, three quid. That was a week's wages. To, a week's wages to, um, in them days, when I first started work, was about £1.50. I'd give my mother a pound, I'd 50p for the week. You used to live on it. That's remarkable. It is. We, we look back on it. And then, you, you, then as time went on, you got a bit more money. But you could always, as I said, you could get credit. And I might borrow a couple of bob off my mate. Yeah, it, was, it was a bit, I was a bit of a, 
I always used to spend a lot all the time, spend, spend, all the skin all the time. He always had money. I said, oh, don't leave me a couple of quid. I said, I'll pay it back to you. I was getting a new pair of shoes made. I said, up at Terry's. He was, was a Maltese guy up in Homerton. And he used to make these beautiful um, Cuban-heeled snake skin. But I had to, I had to have the loudest pair, didn't I? I had a Prince Charles buckle on the front. Do you remember, do you ever remember seeing the kinks? With them big kinks I, I, I do, yes. I mean, it's just about within my memory. You used to have the big buckles on, the yeah. big, what, Prince Charles buckle on the front. I'd done one of my shoes before I'd ever dreamt about it. <laughs> So walk up, you used to walk up back to front on the bus, bus because you couldn't get up the stairs because of the, the points were so long. But, you know, they, 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 were, they were trendy, you know what I mean? Were, were you outland, use that word, outlandish compared to your mates that used to hang around with? I was, with? yeah. Did they, were they, how always, did they feel hanging around with you? Were they well, they, they, no, that was all right. Were, I mean, they knew, they knew what Georgie was like. You know, my sister's was like, what Georgie was like. Was it was a daydreamer. Was it good with the girls as well? Yeah, being, yeah. Being, yeah, yeah. It got to a point with when I had the old quiff originally, because I was a bit of a teddy boy originally, to keep the quiff and used to put a bit of spray on. Did that way be a night? Anybody found out you'd be oh no, 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 I've got it when there's airspray on me, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> you got to kiss you got to kiss a bird and, and then you poke her eye with this elephant trunk. <laughs> Doink. <laughs> it was quite funny. So I mean so you were a, a teddy boy? I was a teddy boy, didn't I become a modernist? A modernist. So I got, I got a scooter, a Vespa. Used to bomb around. That was week, the that. weekly payments. Oh yeah, just come up here to Kings Road, hang out everywhere. It's got, used to go to another place down in. Um, we used to see a lot of the beatniks from uh, Ken Collier's Jazz Club round in the Newport Street. All the beatniks we used to go down to um, Chisworth's Caves on a Saturday and hang out down there. That was brilliant down there because it was actually it was a proper cave. Uh-huh. My mate's uncle used to run it. We used to go down. All the birds used to wear granddad's night shirts. It was all in the dark. You had to have a candle. All the shenanigans that went on down there was brilliant. <laughs> then they introduced rock and roll, which mucked it up, basically. When they had all the beatniks down there and the, and the jazz. I bet there was a bit of trouble when it all sort of crossed no, it was, over. There's always fights. Yeah. They'd be turned up as mods. And then the yeah, rockers down there got silly. They ended up on the reservation on the A1 at the Ace Cafe where they are today. But, you know, that's where they are today. Yeah. But that was an interesting period because we used to hang out in another coffee bar in uh, the Nucleus in Monmouth Street, just over the road. It's where the Shadows used to hang out originally when they first came to London okay. to get discovered. But it was an old jazz club, but it turned into a bit of a dive. There was junkies down there, prostitutes. But we used to go down there, you have a cup of coffee. We was down there one day, and there was a young bird down there, about 17, probably about our age. She was on the game, Blonde Carol, we used to call her, and she had uh, her arm in the sling. We was chatting to this day. I said, what's happened to your arm? She said, oh, my pimp broke it. Oh, nice. I said, well, um, I said, what, are we going to go down to Brighton? Why don't you, are we going to go on the milk train? Not. Why don't you come down to Brighton and sleep under the pier with us? Get away from him for a bit. She said, no, no, you kill me, no, you kill me. So okay, anyway, we said, we'll see you later. And anyway, we buggered off. When, when we came back about a week later, my mate said, have you seen the news of the world? I said, what? He said, there's a prostitute been had a throat slashed, oh, murdered. God. I said, he said, guess who it was? I said, what? He said, Bon Carroll. I said, no. She picked up a client round here, went, went back to Finsbury Park with him, and he cut her throat, and she oh. died. Murdered. The add-on to that was, six, seven, 60 years later, right? How old am I now? Uh, it would have, let's, let's say about eight. Um, 76. Let's say, let's, no, let's say about <laughs> five years ago. Uh-huh. I got a big fat envelope from my door. Post envelope. Opened it up. There's all these pictures of prostitutes. All of them. Do you remember Jack the Stripper? The river. The Jack river the guy. Stripper? Yeah, he was, he was a murdered prostitute along the river. Okay. I'm I, telling I don't you that way. Right. In fact, a lot of people got put in a frame. But Freddie Mills was one of the people they put in the frame as well. Anyway, this couple was writing a book. 
right? He was writing a book about um, these murders. And apparently, the girl that had her throat slashed, she knew one of the girls, like one of the prostitutes. And he said, Dear Mr. Skates, I'm writing a book. I'm an ex-policeman. I'm writing a book about uh, the, these murders. He said, I understand that you knew one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I got hold of it. I wrapped it up and stuck it in. It's, it's in my archive now. I still don't going to get involved in all that because there was. I mean, it was along that street. Then you know, there was a lot of people that were involved in a lot of stuff. There's a lot of brothels on Monmouth Street at that time. In fact, there was a drug bust up down there with guns being blasted in one of the windows next door to, to the Nucleus Coffee Bar. So it's a bit you, of a dodgy you're place. aware of crime going on. Oh yeah, all the there's time a lot of it going you. on. And someone come from East London, and you know what East London's like. And there was a couple of guys there, and they who were related to one another. Mm-hmm. That fact that there was a lot of clubs up there. So I'm, I'm going to be doing all this, and I to this bloke because he's writing a book. You, you've got to be careful what you're saying. You've got to keep stum. Yeah, don't, don't want to get involved in that. But, but there was a time when we got picked up in the amusement arcade by the powers that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's another story. <laughs> Well, you f- feel free. But yeah, we, uh, we used to come up because we used to do the amusement archives as well, you know. There were quite notorious places to be picked up by PDFRs and other people. Free goes on machines. We all knew that. We were streetwise. We did come up a big lane. I mean, we were streetwise. Mm. We knew. You don't talk to straight. Well, if he's going to give you free goes and a free cigarette, which this guy did, he's going to have them, yeah, give me f- this off. We get out of the way. Because you knew what was really going to happen. Anyway, this, this, on this particular occasion... Um, we sent a mission arcade in Wardour Street, near Chinatown. We had no money, we had enough money to get on the bus home in the mission arcade, no money to play on machines, hanging about just being nosy. Packed out with people, two entrances, two entrances, one there and one there. This guy come in, looked like Dick Tracy, had a big Mac on, blonde hair. Anyway, come at us, he said, uh, do you want some free goes on there, boys? Suddenly a penny drops, doesn't it? Straight away. Free goes, why, what's the payback time there somewhere? He said, yeah, yeah, I said, yeah okay, yeah. He called the guy over. There's a guy in there who used to give out the change. He used to have a big, horrible brand laboratory coat. He had millions of keys around his neck. He always had a fag hanging out of his mouth, scruffy, right. dirty fingernails. He came over. He said, Don't do those machines. He said, I'm going to let them have a go. So he said, And then he came back again again. He said, Do you want a cigarette? He said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woodbines. Fresh packet of Woodbines. Great. Anyway, all of a sudden, um, I said to my mate, I said, You know what? I'm a bit iffy this. I said, um, um, I'll tell you what we do. When he comes back in it, before he come, when he goes out after, we piss off out the other door. Anyway, he came in and he said to us, where are you going? Where'd you live? So, uh, East London. I thought that would have got rid of him. He said, we're going that way, he'll give you a lift. I'm like, <laughs> that was it. He said, the car will be in a minute. Right, okay. Anyway, I followed him round to the other door and I looked out the window. There's two heavies in there and another guy. Oh, dear. And I won't tell you who they were. We legged it. I said, come on. I said, next, I said to my mate, we run across Leicester Square to get a bus on, into, into um, Charing Cross. Legged it. He was screaming out after us. Where the fucking hell are you going? Come back here. Where are you going? Yeah. Anyway, we got away from him. I said to my mate, you know, I said, next time I come up here, I said, Tell us, remind me to bring up a pair of bicycle clips. I need to fucking shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> so who were they? Who were the characters in the, the car? It was the twins. We went back the week after. The guy yeah. said, do you know what that was? He said, that was the twins. I said, we had them a packet of eggs and some goes on this machine. <laughs> but I mean, it wasn't that long off before they got nicked. Uh-huh. They, they took over a club in um, Gerard Street. Uh, and Tony called the, I think they called it Neil Morocco. It was the Bonsoir originally, but they got it for um, knockdown price, if you know what I mean. And it, it was only about a year after they, they got nicked, so their careers ended, really. But th- those are the sort of places you could quite easily get picked up. And runaways used to head straight to them places. There was another notorious one in the 70s in Playland in Piccadilly. 
They also go naked. There was a famous TV program called Johnny Come Home, I think, yeah. about a kid who ran away. Yes, but that was notorious in there as well. But I always just, I always just to say that they were, they were the, um, the place. Of course, you used to get young materialists and uh, used to get pros- male prostitutes, pick up clients. Mm. In fact, a friend of mine, I told you this story, it's quite funny. I was walking up Compton Street in about 1985. Guy coming towards me, he's got all these bags of clothes, Versace and all that, and Dior. He came towards me, I didn't recognise him. He went, George. I went, who are you? He said. Don't you recognise me? I said, no. He said, I'm Lance. We used to go to school together. This is 25 years later. I said, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. I said, what are you doing? Where, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Paris. I said, what do you mean you're going? I said, what are you doing? He said, well, actually, he said, um, I've got a rich client out there. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what do you mean you've got a rich client? He said, well, actually, um, he's into flagellation and all that <laughs> stuff. I said, oh, yeah. And uh, he said, he just basically beats me and all that stuff. Oh, nice. I said, where'd you meet him? He said, I met him down on the meat rack, right? Down in Piccadilly under the arches. He's over, he's done at the Regent Palace Hotel. Mm-hmm. Met him, took him back to the hotel, done the business, and since then, they used to send him the fare over to fly They've over to Paris. they kept in touch ever since. Yeah, a long time. Lovely. And uh, he, came, he said to me, he looked at me, he said, I, I told him what I was doing, he said, he said, why don't you do it? I said, what do you mean do it? I said, I'll leave it out. He said, just go down the boots, get some brill cream, stick your hair down, just stand on the corner so they come up to you. I said, oh, you're joking. And do you know what? He said, I'll get some good money. He opened his back pocket. I've got a roll of notes out there, thick. I ain't joking. That thick. So he's well in the money. Now, whether he's still alive today, I don't know. But you can't tell. Let's hope he is well, it, well and healthy and doing something a bit, <laughs> a bit yeah. better with his time. But I mean, yeah, yeah, so that, that was life. Talk to us about your art, what, what you're up to nowadays, because obviously you're an artist. You said you've actually had some work sort of exhibited before as well. I did show, um, I did show some work at the um, Royal Academy. In fact, there's a little story attached to that. It's your solo story. Because I had to walk through solo to get to the Royal Academy from over the side of the road. I was used to come down Old Compton Street. Well, it'd be in 1974. There was a famous murder in the Golden Goose amusement arcade. Yeah. Walked past and they'd, they'd do the police right outside. I walked past with one of my paintings to go to take to the Royal Academy, which actually got accepted, 1974. But uh, I had to walk past there, and I wondered what was going on. I said, there's been a murder. Like, you know. The previous year, I also had two accepted. Do you know when you think, uh, I thought I've got no chance. So many people send work in there, thousands and thousands. So only show one thousand, one hundred out of thousands. Yeah. The chances you had was almost zilch. I got two on the first occasion. So maybe I was doing something right, what, you know. What was the style of those? The style pieces? was they were very surrealist, and it was they were very kind of uh, history orientated as well. And that was uh, based on Greek mythology. Then that was followed by the King Arthur of the Knights of the Round Table, that kind of story. Because oh. I, I used to like those kind of stories, and the history of it as well. And that thought, that, was it false? Was it was it true? Blah blah blah. King Arthur, who was he? But it turns out, really, I mean, it's a story that's been um, embroidered over the centuries. It starts off in the 5th century. Then it goes to Geoffrey uh, Gen- um, of Monmouthshire in Wales. Then it goes to France. Then it comes back again. Then you've got the other guy who wrote uh, Mort d'Arthur. Uh, I can't think of his name now. He was in prison in the Tower of London in the 15th century. 16th so, so century. these are all ideas you put together from books you've read? Yeah, yeah. You used to be, be so it's all this kind of literature. Then you had Tennyson, who brings in like a moral Victorian bit to the story uh-huh. about the baby uh, Arthur being found at Tintagel in a basket. But it's, it's like Moses, you know what I mean? It kind of, that's kind of change, change it to suit that, um, that age. But it always fascinated me because it was a bit like, like fairy sort of stories as well. All that kind of stuff. I like that, that world, Arthur Rackham, mm-hmm. all that stuff. I used to love it. Because I lived in that kind of fantasy world anyway. 
And my work's always come from in there. Some of it come from out there. I would never paint a pot of flowers or paint a scene. It all comes from there. It's a bit like poetry. The words come up and they tell pictures. So it's all within your imagination. It's all in there. The ones, you saw, the ones you saw today uh-huh. is what I call pot board. Is there nothing? So they were um, exhibited in Tony's workshop. Yeah, but yeah. They, were, they were shown at uh, the Covent Garden Gallery. Okay, been, we'll put be- them up on the... They've been around those, but I mean, they're, they're easy to look at. They jump off the wall, they make nice posters, they're pretty, let's put it that way. But there is a theme in them, because who used to like pulp comics when I was a teenager. Some old boy, he said to me, why did you do, as, as a man of your age, right, I was about 70 when I did them. He said, what's an old man of you, you know, he's doing those comic-y things. I said, actually, if you look at them, they're all the, peop- the people in them are people I knew, I know. And it was part of my growing up as a teenager, all of it, neon lights. Soho, it's, it's all in them, all these pictures. Sure. It's all there, and it, it was like in comic form. I thought it would be a good idea to have a little bit of discipline and do a series of works on that subject. And it was about me as a person as well, about my life. Are you still painting today? I still paint today, yeah. Wait, what you do at home? You're at the studio. I'm working on, I'm working on a, um, a 12 feet by 4 feet triptych, which is three panels. Uh-huh. Uh, it's called the Soho Triptych, and it goes from 57 up to the present day. Oh, fantastic. And about two, uh, it's probably about two years finished. It's been on the go for the last two years, believe it or not, because I keep getting sidetracked on what I'm being today, doing oh, this interview. <laughs> <laughs> you have to I'm, build I'm, the podcast I'm always doing, I'm well. doing loads of things, you know, yeah. and it, while, it, while I'm doing other things as well, I mean, I'm still living. I've got a life. I can do the art anytime. So I always go back to it. Uh-huh. But it will be, it'll be, uh, it'll be quite a splash. It's going to be in the same style as those uh, you saw today. Yes, lovely. Talk, talking of, you said you've got a, you, you still got to live and you've got a life. Just talk us through like a typical day in the life of George. A typical day is when I get up, I normally um, I get dressed. My clothes are ready to go out. Uh, shopping list. <laughs> Berwick Street. Now, first stop is Newsley, the museum, British Museum, which is five minutes walk. Walk up there into the so, members' room. So you go there every day? Every day, every single day of the year. To do what? Cappuccino in the right. member, members' room. Uh-huh. Cappuccino. I know a lot of staff there though as well. Right. I worked there for 27 years. Uh, of course. Uh, so they all know me. I don't have to queue up. I walk through the main gate. They just wave at me in. You know? <laughs> That's <laughs> George. Let him in. Everybody, everybody's going, who's this guy? Who's he going? Yeah, I walk straight in there. Then I, I'll be there for about half an hour. Then I come back via Sarah Square, Fifth Street, pop in there. But say hello to Tony downstairs yeah. or whoever's around. My friend, um, Wayne, the old modernist, used to be a DJ down at the scene club uh, okay. in, in the early days, in the 1960s. He's still about, it's funny, he's funny, that's why we always used to chat about us being the two oldest swingers still in Soho from that period, although I'm about two years older than him. Then I got to Break Street, see Tony, sell out to a lot of stall holders, pop into my place. What's your place? You're back home again? My place is the coffee bar. Right. There's a lovely portrait of me in there on the wall, don't you notice? When I went in there today, shall I to Maria? Which coffee bar are you talking about now? Down on, on the corner, just past Tony's, further up. Do you know when I stopped and said, I've got to say hello to Maria? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, they've been about four years now. But I used to sit there before they moved in and took it over. When you say your place, it's It's called yours? my place. Oh, right. That is the name of it, yeah. <laughs> we'll get there in the end. Like I'm being And Dini, who actually took it, uh, who opened it, we used to be a barista in um, by Italia for uh-huh. 18 years. You know, he decided to open up his own place with another guy called Sammy. Sammy used to work around in um, uh, Zabrano's, around in Greek Street, where uh, Peter Cook had his club, the establishment right. in the 60s. And they got together and opened up this place called My Place. Anyway, I became their poster boy. They won the best coffee shop of the year award, uh, two years running. And they, the first time they entered, they, they uh, come second. 
which is really good. So we had to go to the Hilton Hotel. So me dressed up to the nines with a hat on and the rest of it. And going up the stage and collecting the... Pl- full treatment. I mean, the red carpet, all that stuff. Great. It was like um, four, four hours. You had, you had a live show, you had a meal, then you had the awards at the end. But by the time you get to the awards about 11 o'clock, you're falling asleep. So after you've done that, you've done your podcast, what do you do the rest of the day? I might walk around. I might, I might leave via Masalo to Mark Powell. Martha Tailoring, Marsh, Mar, Mar, uh, Marshall Street, then cross over Piccadilly, uh, cross over Regent Street into uh, Palm, um, Bond Street, into the RA probably, Royal Academy. Mm-hmm. Walk round in there, maybe have a cup, cup of coffee in there. Then double back, come up Brewer Street, this way again, over down China Cross Road, into the National Portrait Gallery, then the National Gallery next door for maybe 15 to 20 minutes. Because I always used to say to people, if you're fed up and depressed, you don't need a shrink. Don't, don't, don't go there, I said. Go into a gallery. Absolutely. Just go in there, chill out. And they're free as well, mostly. And th- that is the thing about me, maybe. Maybe I'm, I go in every, I go, I'm in there every day, literally. 15 to 20 minutes or even maybe longer. Just to wander around and just wander around and let your it, imagination yeah, yeah, yeah. going. Yeah. Well, see, what I call it, I call it artistic calories. That's what it is to me. Yeah. Not food calories, artistic calories. And they go in there. I'm very visual. I'm seeing things all the time. That's that is me. Yeah. I'm very. I, I see things. A lot of people don't well, see. You really are a flaneur, then, aren't you? I, I mean, really am. Walk around. Yeah, I'm watching you, all the time. Yeah. Of course, that's how you get. That's how you get a kind of street education as well. Yeah. You see, you see problems before they're starting. But you're a retired gentleman now. I mean, you've been retired. I'm a retired. Well, retired well, if you, gentleman. Well, I, I never really had a proper job, really, to be honest. In a sense, yeah. I've always done my own thing. The idea of working in a museum is it's nutty, isn't it? No yeah. qualifications. How on earth did you get in there? Have you enjoyed? What do you say you've enjoyed? I've had a great, I've had a great life, yeah. fabulous life, really have. And also, I was, I went to a party one night with all these kind of intellectuals who lived near the museum. One of them was the uh, librarian at the um, for the Labour Party, and her husband was a, a, a philosopher. I said, I still love chatting to him. But I went to a party of theirs one night, and she said to me, "George, where do you work?" I said, "I work in the British Library." She went, oh, "Really." Because the way I was talking with the cotton out, she couldn't believe that I actually worked in there. She said, how did you get in there? So I've been trying to get in there in years, into the library. I said, oh, I just, I don't know, I just turned up one day and I was in. <laughs> and she couldn't believe it. Yeah. She, and now, you, now you're getting into movies as well. You told me earlier that you're going to do a part in well, uh, I've, I've, I've done, I've done some. I've done some extra work. Uh, I've done magazines, books, TV. I was on Mary Berry about six weeks ago. That was done about nine months ago. Mary Berry. Yeah, no, I know Mary Berry. I'm trying to think to make, how you would fit into Mary Berry's well, show. Well, she had to make me a cup of co- a pr- cappuccino. She came right. into Soho uh-huh. to several restaurants, and one of them, it was called, um, e- e- was it Easy Meals or something? Quick Meals. She was taught how to make a cappuccino by Deanie in my, by my place. And the BBC contacted Deanie to ask me to go around there. I said, no, he's going there a lot. And she had to make me a cappuccino. I'm not to judge her on it at the end. Uh, of was it good? Yeah. That was alright. I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, actually, I said, I said, Dini is a Leonardo da Vinci of Cabaracino. <laughs> I said, in Berwick Street, no one else. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, what's but, this part you've got coming up in the in this film? Well, it's just it's supposed to. Well, they ain't contacted me yet, so I'm hoping maybe they're going to contact me pretty soon. Instead, they want to do a high high profile shot because they originally wanted to have me walking past the barrel boys in Berwick Street selling fruit. The, the, the camera, they had it all set up. I mean, it was actually, I mean, the, the camera was on, on the track. They'd got all the barrel boys out to pretend they were selling fruit on a Sunday afternoon. I paid them to come out. And um, I was going to have to walk past. She, she said to me, you'll be wasted. It'll be too quick. We, we want to put you in a high-profile shot. I said, well, okay, yeah, sure. 
Very so good. So I might send them an email and ask me to come round. It's going to be round there anyway. Pop band. And I'll, I'll well, end up with the extras down in the room having a cup of coffee. Probably till my, I'm called. Well, you're a man of many talents, obviously. And it's been an absolute treat to uh, to have you on the show. You've got so many stories. I mean, we could probably sit here for another two hours. And, and, could, and yeah. you wouldn't... I can talk all day. But, uh, <laughs> and I can walk all day my as well. My batteries are running out. <laughs> I can walk all day as well. <laughs> I bet you can. <laughs> now, before we, um, before we wrap this up, I ask all my guests if they can tell us two places that they love in London that they could recommend. Now, if anyone knows places in London, it's going to be you around here. So can you tell us two two good places in London that you love, that you could recommend? It could be a restaurant, a museum. Well, well, I'll tell you what, my London legacy would be two places, I'll tell you straight away. One was the British Museum. Yeah. Fascinated there. I was a young child. Went there with a school originally. Never looked back, really. Fascinated. Uh-huh. And the idea of working out, as, as I told you earlier, for 27 years was unbelievable. Sure. That was one of them. And it's a great place to visit anyway. Yes, Fabulous it's place. a wonderful place. The other place was really um, my Nirvana, artistically, was the Victoria and Albert Museum, or Albertopolis. So, in a sense, a German prince really, really formed my life, in a sense. Queen Victoria's husband... Prince Albert, yes, who had it built, fabulous. And I used to go to the Brompton Boilers when they moved into Bethel Green. It's now called the Museum of Childhood. My mother used to go as a kid. She lived over the road. But I used to go there as well. You know, and that was quite fascinating. But that was actually, uh, that was donated to the East End, East End of London for, poor, for the poor, mm-hmm. to educate them artistically, you know, intellectually and so on. But the v was absolutely, it's a, even today, fantastic. I haven't been there for years, I must confess. You've got to go, you've got to but go. But I must, I must get back there. But the, the, Western, the Western galleries, where they've got the, um, the casts, they've just done it up recently. It, it's fantastic. I actually sent them an email, say how fabulous it was. When I went in there about two weeks ago, I thought, you know, well, wow, it's fabulous. Yeah. And it brought back all those memories when I first walked in there. Well, you know what? I mean, I could, I could live in there, really. I could live under that statue of David. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for sharing all, sharing all your wonderful stories and memories of it's London been, and growing up and your youth. And it's been, it's been my today. pleasure. And um, very much look forward to seeing you again wandering around the streets of Soho. Oh, you will. Yeah, we will indeed. Otherwise, I'll be coming back as a ghost. <laughs> Thanks, George. <laughs> thank okay, you. thank you. Every week here at Your London Legacy we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.